I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. I'm a historian, author, aggressively fast walker, but lately in a world that promises endless progress, even now in a pandemic, I've realized I just need to be a person. It's hard to give up on the feeling that the life you want is just out of reach. If only you tried. Eat this food, find that relationship, just get the kids graduated or the parents this kind of care. Only then will I feel different, better, whole. But that's not the way this works. When I was 35, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And here's the very fun thing about that. The world loves you better when you are shiny, when you are cheerful, when you still believe that your best life now is right around the corner. I've written multiple books on the history of the idea that you can always fix your life. So I'm going to be the one to say it. There are some things we can change and some things we can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. We can have beauty and meaning, community and love, and we will need each other if we're going to tell the truth. Life is a chronic condition, and there's no cure for being human. This is about the stories we tell ourselves, the stories that wrap around us like a blanket. You were always a fighter. This runs in the family. You're just like your dad. A story becomes a history, an account of us. And sometimes it's true, and sometimes it isn't. And sometimes it's simply the story that we know how to live with. Today, we're going to be talking about the stories that enfold questions of adoption. Questions about parentage, birth parents, adoptive parents, and the way we understand how we belong. This is what my guest, Nicole Chung, beautifully calls family lore. Nicole Chung's beautiful writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, and she also writes a weekly advice column for Slate. She is the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine and the former managing editor of one of my very favorite websites from yesteryear, The Toast. And her best-selling debut memoir, All You Can Ever Know, was named a best book of the year by like a zillion outlets. It is the gorgeous story of family secrets and questions around belonging as she unravels her experience of being adopted. Nicole, I have been looking forward to this conversation for such a long time. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to it too. Thanks for inviting me. When I was reading your book, I couldn't stop thinking that you're telling me a story about formulas. Like there's a formula for the way that we talk about adoption that I didn't realize until I read your work. Like maybe an adopted person will be told, you're so lucky your parents chose you. Or your birth parents must be such brave people. They chose what was best for you. Mm -hmm. And every part of the story sounds uncomplicated, like tidied up, but none of it is quite right. I thought maybe we could start at the beginning with your adoption and your Mm -hmm. understanding of it as a child. What was the story about your birth and adoption that you had at the time? I remember being very, very young and sitting in my mother's lap and hearing this story. And I would ask to hear it over and over because I was, I was looking for comfort and familiarity. And because even as 
as a very young child without the language, you know, without the emotional, um, like maturity to really say everything I was feeling like I did. I wanted to hear the story. It wasn't because it wasn't painful in a way. It was because I did find it painful and I was trying to understand that and like trying to put words to it. So what I always heard was the same. Your birth parents were Korean immigrants. So that they came here from Korea. They, um, they had you very, very early. I was born, um, you know, estimates vary, but probably around 26, 27, 28 weeks at the most. Yeah. Um, you were supposed to have a lot of medical problems and your birth parents thought they wouldn't be able to give you the life you deserve. Um, and so they thought adoption was the best thing for you. And you know, this is the story I heard over and over. Uh, my parents never wavered in the telling of it. I I was so struck by the the frequency and the just, I mean, sheer inappropriateness of, of the way that you, from already a very young age, you had to give an account of yourself as if you're some kind of problem that needs to be solved and that other adults are allowed to ask you about your origin story. Yeah, you kind of expect it from your peers in a way, like from kids. Um, kids don't have yeah. filters. It's one of the great and terrible things about children. <laughs> right? <laughs> so like, and some of them were trying to be cruel, but most truly were not. Most were curious. Yeah. Um, with adults, though, you're right. Like the, the questions that adults often feel entitled to ask, I mean, children generally, and then adopted kids in particular. Um, the questions people ask when what they see, like, isn't necessarily what they expect. So in my case, a Korean child with white parents in a very white town. Um, I was asked from a really young age to like explain my presence there and explain my family to people. People would, would want to ask like where I was from. Um, I had other kids ask me just a lot of questions. And I just vividly recall being asked like, how much did your parents pay for you? Like oh. at a very young age, I did not know. And there is no oh. way my mother would have told me at that age or my father. Like I was just yeah. sitting with the like sheer, um, like just like pain and audacity of that question. Um, but those are the types of questions I really did get. And it was partly because it was a transracial adoption. So the difference announced itself in this super obvious way. Um, and it did, it invited, seemed to invite a lot of comments, a lot of questions. Um, people really just looking to me, a child to explain like, how this came to be. Yeah. Yeah. I always find you can hear it in the tone of voice. Like there's a casual tourism about it. Mm -hmm. Like, so like they're allowed to visit a place in your life. That's, that's tender and, and, and does not involve them, does not require their presence there. I always thought by telling this story, like this familiar, like rote story, people would just accept that and then stop asking me questions. Um, in fact, that is not usually what happened. Yeah. And I remember being so puzzled by that, like, but this is the story and this is the only story I have. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. have more details to give you, even if, you know, even if I wanted to, it was this constant feeling of like, just not having the answers I knew people wanted. And at the same time, there was this need that many people have and had, I think when I was growing up to like, the adoption in these very simplified terms. In a way, it's surprising that more people didn't kind of just accept that story and move on. Yeah. Like we do, like you said, we often want it to be like so simple. Birth parents make a noble sacrifice. Adoptive parents get the ch child they've longed for. Everyone is happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no one has any problems. And in fact, of course, it's, it's, it's far more complicated than that. Yeah. 
I think we're about, I think we're ish the same age. So you're growing up in the eighties. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm 39 right now. So, you know, it, it did seem like a generational choice that, that, that your parents were, were trying to be colorblind as they understood it when it came to raising you. What was behind that? And, and what do you think you maybe gained or lost by that choice? So at the time I was adopted, my adoptive parents asked like many people, people they considered experts, like the social worker at the agency, the lawyer who handled the adoption, the judge who finalized it, you know, yeah. they asked like, is there anything in particular, anything special we should know, anything we need to do because she's Asian and we're not. Yeah. And my mother has hilariously told me like, I thought someone would recommend a book or something. Oh, but like yeah. no one did. They all mostly they just kind of took a moment and then they yeah. were like, "No, you just you know love and assimilate her." The the word <laughs> the judge used was assimilate. Oh my um, gosh! And then like everything will be fine. You know she's yours now. And in a sense, this was the easier answer for them to hear, right? Maybe even what they wanted or expected to hear. But I also believe my parents were. Um, like well-intentioned and also humble enough that if someone had told them something different, like yeah. actually, yeah, this will be a thing. Like you need to be ready to talk about it and, and to talk about race and to talk about racism. Like I believe they would have tried to hear that. Um, not to say they wouldn't have made some mistakes because we all do, but I think they would have taken that advice if it had been offered. The fact is it wasn't. They were told really like, just raise her as you would any other kid. You can raise her like you would a white kid. And so it was one of those things where recommendations kind of lined up with what was probably more comfortable for them anyway. Yeah. The result being that, you know, of course, like I knew from a pretty young age that my race and the way I looked and like presented to the world, like did matter to some people, um, mattered very much. Yeah. It was not what I was like led to expect growing up in my family. Um, yeah. And for what it's worth, you know, I don't think it mattered to my parents in the sense that, of course, it didn't affect how much they loved me yeah. um, or like loved our family, you know, and that too can be a, um, I don't want to say like a blinding factor, but like, I mean, yeah. they didn't see me as their Korean child. They saw me yeah. as their child. And so yeah. it was very easy for them to believe that was how other people would see me too. Yeah. Yeah. But just that, I mean, I imagine that that like silence around what it would mean for you to exist in the world led to, I mean, you, you write about how you started to withdraw. It was just hard to, to sort of bear the full weight of everybody else's either, you know, casual racism or hammering home your adoption story, but it just, it created a kind of barrier that, that must've felt like it, there just wasn't enough categories to really fully understand what belonging should feel like. I, it was hard to put words to like what I wasn't seeing. Like I did not see other Asians very much. I did not have like any Korean friends until college actually. So, you know, just spending my whole childhood with like no access to other Koreans to people who looked like me to like my culture and like what it meant other than I knew it meant experiencing like racism or microaggressions but I didn't I didn't like know like what positive things I could associate with it like it was sort of like I was defined by the lack of something yes that makes sense lack of whiteness and also lack of access to my heritage rather than like 
like actually having something like if I had say grown up in a Korean family, like I would also have ha- I would have known like what it meant in a sense, at least to be Korean in my family. And I didn't really have that. So, you know, it was, it was hard. It was isolating. And just like thinking about your last question too, I think, I think my adoptive parents were very like a lot of other, like basically well-intentioned white people in really honestly believing that like your race shouldn't matter. What should matter is the person that you are like that is, and it's not that that's not true. It's just that of course it's like much more complicated than that. You can be a wonderful person and that just doesn't inoculate you from racism in this country. Yeah. Yeah. This is only tangentially related. The last history book I wrote was about um, the history of uh, Christian women. And it, you know, it's hard now to understand like the context of debates over like that there was any debate over what to do about whether a woman is in a con in the context of uh, domestic abuse. But I interviewed all these female leaders who were leading in the eighties and they were like, Kate, you don't understand. Like I get a book. Like our resource was a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was just kind of struck by like, they got a hand in a focus on the family book. And they're like, and that's how we made decisions is James Dobson told us how, like how this should work. I was so struck by how even just the changing laws later on in your life affected how you were able to engage with the closed nature of your adoption, just how much, you know, the history of adoption changed as you were trying to figure out what it meant for your life. You know, because mine was a domestic adoption, so like domestic in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, it means it was subject to like the law of the particular state that I was born in, in I this see. case, Washington. Um, we have 50 states and 50 different like adoption sets of adoption laws and policies, and they change within those states. Yeah. At the time I was born, most adoptions in Washington state were mostly like closed, confidential, kind of by default. Although open adoption, like some degree of contact and exchange of information was like probably starting to become slightly more common, still very much not, not common. Although also my adoptive family was very against like any kind of contact, you know, going forward. You know, but in between like the time I was adopted and the time I, I was thinking about searching for my birth family, the law in Washington state had changed to where adoptees and closed adoptions in a certain era, which mine was one of, uh, could, could try to get information through a, a confidential intermediary, like a third party mm-hmm. who request like my adoption file, make contact for me, and then only like share identifying information like names, addresses with like mutual consent of all parties. And since then, actually, since I searched, the law has changed again. Like if I were to search today, I would not need a confidential intermediary. Oh, wow. I could actually do that myself because of when I was adopted and the fact that the law has changed again. Um, So that's kind of interesting too. I was just noticing the way that so often Christianity was a way of saying something really beautiful about your adoption, like, you know, something like God wanted us to be your parents, mm-hmm. but it also maybe prevented the truth from being a little bit more complicated. Did you find yourself kind of like thinking with and against maybe like Christian explanations for the the meaning of oh, why you were a family? So I was also raised very religious and yet their explanation to me of like, you know, this was God's will for our family. Like this, this was always like meant to be, even as a like, kid I'll say starting in adolescence yeah like that didn't quite ring true to me because I would I found myself wondering like well like what about my birth parents like doesn't God care about my birth parents and what they wanted 
And I'd always been told they wished they could keep me. So if they wished they could keep me, but they couldn't, like, how could that be God's will, you know? Yeah. So I think even even growing up, like before I really questioned much of anything about like, you know, my religious upbringing, I questioned this particular religious interpretation of my adoption. Um, it just didn't quite, I couldn't make it gel with like the whole, but I have two families. And like, if they both wanted me, you know, how does God, why? Like, why would God be choosing like one over another? Yeah. Yeah. I always feel a bit um, allergic to any kind of like, you know, spiritual determinism. Mm-hmm. Like I, I never mind if it sort of grows up like a flower through concrete, like, oh, there's still beauty and meaning and truth here. But it always bothers me when people want to assign things like, you know, and this, and God allowed this to happen right? so that you could, <laughs> I feel like, well, I feel like cancer is probably a crappy way to learn that if God's yeah. very invested in my education. Yeah. I see why it's comforting for people for sure. Um, yeah. And Again, it played it played really well into the general narrative of adoption that um, that I think my my adoptive parents found comforting. Yeah, I think too, like the um, you know, it was very very painful to want to become parents and be unable to, and they lost a child to miscarriage before I was adopted. And I mean, it wasn't quite as simplistic. I don't think as like yeah, God made this better for us because you know we adopted you, but it was this feeling that like you know they really felt strongly they were meant to be parents. And um, yeah, when they heard that I was available for adoption from like a friend of a friend, it just seemed like, I don't know, fate or God's will and or things that I, I don't quite believe were the case. Yeah. You decided to search for your biological parents as just, just as you were starting your own family. Mm-hmm. What prompted that decision? It was so chaotic looking back. Like, I remember thinking, I mean, so many things. I remember being at my first prenatal appointment, um, as I write about in the book, and just like thinking biological parenthood and that link between mother and child, like that physical link. To me, it just felt completely alien, completely foreign. I had never conceived of myself in that kind of relationship. And, you know, yet I had planned and wanted to get pregnant. And here I was. I suddenly felt woefully unprepared. Like, I won't know how to do this. Yeah. The midwife uh, asked me, you know, standard intake form, wanted to know about my own birth history. And like, you know, she asked me like, well, why? Why did your birth mother have you early? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I I don't know why. Um, I know like medical reasons that premature birth happens, but I didn't know like why mine had happened. And I, I suddenly began to wonder like, what if the same thing happens to me? Like, what if there's something I need to know to like prevent it? I, I don't know how to do this. Like, and... I need to do better, like by my child, if I can, like, I want to have this information, like, you know, for their sake, um, as well as mine. One of my friends who's an adoptee, um, and also in reunion, like with her birth family, told me years later, there are things we can do for our children, we can't always do for ourselves. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Not to say that like my, my child was the only reason I searched. I actually think, I think eventually I would have anyway you know, even without becoming a parent. But I know for sure a huge factor in my decision to search like then, you know, um, was the fact that I was expecting my first child and like just suddenly felt this like drive that I had not felt before. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'd wondered about it. I'd thought about it. I'd researched it even, but like nothing really made me like move forward um, until, until I was pregnant. 
And so what are the, for people who were like, just haven't ever thought about the choice of that, I think maybe some people might just think like, oh, of course you'd want more information. Therefore, it seems pretty simple. But there was, I mean, it sounds like there were all kinds of, of complicated things that might happen if you did decide to reach out. Oh, for sure. I mean, part of it was like information. Information is good. Um, <laughs> sure. Like information I, is neutral. Oh, wait. <laughs> right, right. Like it was very easy. But of course, it was like so much bigger than that, too. Like beyond a set of facts that I might or might not get. Yeah. It really felt like stepping off a cliff. I was opening up this box that had been closed my whole life. And no, it was not always easy to have that box closed. But like I knew generally like how I felt and what I thought with that <laughs> box closed. And like with it opened, everything could change, you know? Um, yeah. In fact, everything did change. Yeah, <laughs> and it, did. it was pretty terrifying to stand at the precipice and to know like, you know, this really could change everything. Um, and my life is already changing in this other major way. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm growing a human being, you know, and like, it's just, it was, it was an awful lot to kind of do all at once. And at the same time, I feel as though having like that search coincide with my pregnancy, like it, it gave me more than one thing to focus on. Like if one thing was too overwhelming, yeah. oh, there's this other equally overwhelming, like <laughs> high stakes, life changing thing. <laughs> I know it doesn't sound helpful, but like, no, I hear you existential threshold. You're right. like, I'm just going to cross over it and it starts now. <laughs> right. Like, so at any other point in my life, the search would have been like the only, like the biggest thing in my life, the only thing I could think about, I would have been obsessed with it night and day. I was tired in pregnancy. Sometimes I yeah. fell asleep, you know, like at 8 p.m. in front yes. of the television. Like it, so it truly did. It sort of kept my energies divided, but in a way that was semi-helpful. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just overwhelming. What are, sorry to just like ask you for like categories of fear, but like, what are people typically afraid of when they're trying to make a decision about whether to search for their biological parents? Oh gosh. I mean, like so many things. And of course I can mostly speak to my own experience. Yeah. It's funny how many times in my life I have thought I've got this adoption thing pretty well figured out. Like, I think I know, I know it's complicated. (laughs) It's really, it's not a simple story, but like I've generally like faced and dealt with like it and I'm in a good place. So many points in my life I've thought that and then like turns out something happens that kind of throws everything end over end again. Yeah. I mean, like most recently losing my adoptive parents, um, which I have in the space of the last two and a half years. And I just I mentioned that because like I have been shocked at just how much like that grief for them has like raised like more feelings related to my adoption. Like they're it's just bound up like those losses. I I really do remember thinking like you know, you've gotten to this place that like, it's not perfect. You could know more. Generally a state of sort of equilibrium. Like Mm -hmm. at least I didn't feel unstable, like where my adoption was concerned. And like, I knew what I knew and what I didn't know. And like, there was no risk in staying where I was at all. I understood that like searching was a risk because it could prove them just extremely like emotionally overwhelming. It could change how I thought about my family and my history my birth parents, you know, my noble birth parents whose story I had been told um, for years, it could change. And like, what if they, to reach out and then to hear a no, like, of course I would have accepted it, but like, how would it feel to be like, sort of given up all over again? Um, 
so there was just a lot, like there was a lot of fear. Oh, and, and the fear of like, you know, hurting my adoptive family, like if they couldn't understand and the fear of like no longer being maybe whatever, like ideal or good adoptee, like the well-adjusted person people thought I was who didn't need to know X, Y, Z about her history. I, I had met plenty of people who were like, well, sure. Like you don't feel a need to like find your birth parents because you love your adoptive family and they're your family. Again, a lot of people wanted it to be a very simple story. Yes. But ultimately, I just decided like all of these fears, they are real, but they do not have to like be my burden anymore. You know, they don't have to govern my decision. Like, what do I want here? Like, that's the question that matters the most, like in this search. And of course, what my birth parents want if I find them, you know. Yeah. My my friend who's... um an adoptive parent, she says uh, that adoption begins with the reality of loss, but it sounds too like to go, to go searching for another family felt like you might had have to narrate losses that you, you didn't intend to narrate. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's true. Every adoption, no matter how loving or how, how good of an outcome it ultimately is for that child, like it does begin with a loss of their first, their first family, like their original family. And you know, of course, like a loss of a particular type of history or connection or heritage. So yeah, and it's not even that these are like uh, unrecoverable, you know? Yeah. Life is yeah. long and um, there's there's so much that like you can try to reclaim, but ultimately like, yeah, of course it does. It does start with that initial loss. No, not in a country with endless victory, Nicole. This is a country of winners. And I'm just letting you know that any story not about winners is not a story people want to hear. <laughs> yeah. You um when you finally connected with your birth parents, what happened? Um, it was funny because uh like I got my first like email from my birth father like the day I went into labor um, which is kind of a spoiler but like you've read the book so you know and like honestly (laughs) no but when I I was (laughs) with the story of you going into labor and then and then you get the email from your dad and I did stop and I was like holy crap I was like like, we're gonna have to deal with this later actually the first the first people to reach out were like my sisters. Um, so my mm-hmm. biological sisters, and that was unexpected for me because what happened was, um, yeah, I don't want to like give everything away, but like my birth parents were, were divorced by the time I, um, I found them and I sent like separate letters to each of them. And my birth mother, um, couldn't like quite read or understand it fully. Yeah. Um, and so she had asked one of my sisters to translate and my sister was like, what? Like, so it turns out my sisters had been told that I died at birth. Um, and yeah, so that was, I mean, of course you can imagine like just like a shattering realization for them. Um, so by the time I heard like from my birth mother and she, like, she called me like a week after I'd given birth. So again, like all this was really happening like at the same time. Yeah. I, I did already have kind of these uh, developing like relationships and like a particularly close one with my sister, Cindy. So um, I had gotten like a lot of the family story from her and, yeah, you know, Cindy was really like my conduit, like my bridge, um, yeah. not just to like that family, but like to my history, like into what had happened when I was born, like what was going on. I will always just be like 
surprised and also very grateful that, you know, that she shared that so generously that she wanted to know me. Um, and that, you know, she also felt, I think she felt entitled to ask questions that like, I didn't know if I had the right to ask, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yep. Um, so sometimes it would be like her asking like our father, like, why did this happen or what, you know, what happened next? And then like, she would share that with me, which was like so much easier than me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Being like, you just yeah. are getting to know me, but I would really like to know more about this most painful season of your life. That must've felt like just having her there gave like an extra measure of courage, but also yeah. Permission. I think she thought she was kind of fighting for the truth for both of us. Mm. Um, whereas I, of course, still felt like very tentative about it all. And like, oh, I don't know if I even like, you know, yeah. um, I kind of yeah. just burst back onto the scene, like, and yeah. caused all this drama. So like, <laughs> maybe I should just be quiet <laughs> and see what yeah. they offer. But I mean, Cindy was really like, uh, from the beginning, like, no, uh, we are going to get to the bottom of this <laughs> yes. and, um, really tried to like figure out like, you know, what had happened and tried to understand and share that with me. Um, yeah, she's, you know, she's incredible. <laughs> well, you're really careful too, about there sort of being no heroes or villains, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> in this story you write, uh, my adoption was hard and complicated, but it was not a tragedy. It was not my fault, but it wasn't theirs either. Mm-hmm. That's a very generous, that's a very generous thing to say. I mean, thank you for saying that. I also think it would be ungenerous and untrue to say something different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I do think a lot of people want, like, adoption to be simple and straightforward. And then sometimes when people hear about, like, my birth parent situation, you know, they do want there to still be, like, a clear villain. Yeah. I know. They're also just people who crave that in stories. <laughs> and I get it. No, end the story. No, tell me what happened. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. It, well, it just makes it easier, too, if there is yeah. someone to blame. Like, yes. when everyone is just trying to survive and do the best they can, there there are certainly people who will find that less interesting. But that is also life. I mean, yeah. um, in most <laughs> yeah. cases, right? But ultimately, like, the adoption itself, like, that initial choice that set the course for the rest of my life, I mean, that wasn't anyone's. Like that wasn't anyone's fault. It's just, it's not that simple, you know, and it wasn't, it's not something, even if I feel anger or pain or sadness or something over it, that doesn't mean that there's, um, you know, easy answers. That doesn't mean that I was to blame or that they were to blame. Um, yeah. It truly is. Life is always, almost always more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. It did seem to you that one of the I'll say unexpected gifts because it sounds like you you walked into this not trying very hard not to expect, you know, too much or to kind of prescribe how it was going to go. But it seems like one of the unexpected gifts of getting to know your birth dad was that um, when he came to visit you, that that you were able to get to know a, f- a fuller part of your family history, that you could mm-hmm. get wrapped into a bigger, longer story of of who you are, not just like not just having freckles like your sister, but also just, which is so sweet, <laughs> but like knowing um, there's just something so compelling about seeing, seeing a family tree and just seeing a story reach back. It was amazing to realize he had like, you know, there's a family book in Korea. There's like over 500 years they can trace wow. back, um, which is pretty incredible. And it's, it's amazing to both know that I'm sort of part of that and also to recognize like, you know, my name doesn't appear in that book mm-hmm. and it, it never will. Um, as an adoptee, you know, as someone 
um, raised in another family and as someone who is still like kind of a family secret in the sense that many people in my birth family still have no idea that I survived. Um, you know, and that's just due to choices that people have made. Um, it's not my place to like, you know, uh, well, I don't have to agree, but it's, it's not my place to like contact everybody and be like, Hey, um, so like just knowing that both that is my history and also it's a history I will never really be able to lay full claim to, um, because I'm not like fully claimed as a member of the family. It's again, like it's not as satisfying as it would be if this were a movie, the movie would end with me having my name written in that book. Um, and that is yeah. not how life goes yeah. a lot of the time. Adoption certainly gave me a lot, but there's a lot that I've lost as well. And it's not all going to be recoverable. I love that you just said that. Well done, you. That's real. <laughs> I just needed I just needed a second with that. I thought that was like Well done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's easier, I think, for people. I don't know, and it's easier for ourselves sometimes just to um to say things like um that nothing is lost. Hmm. Yeah. I like that you uh, move forward into knowing more about your family and and stepping into parts of your a family connection, knowing that um, some things will add beauty and meaning to your life, and other things just can't be can't be remade. Mm-hmm. That sounds really existentially uh, very brave. I like that. Thank you. I mean, honestly, I've become very comfortable dwelling in like gray areas. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's where yeah. I, that's where I've made my career. <laughs> Welcome, Ben. Um, Welcome to my life. I love it. I love this space here. I love the gray space. I really do. I really do. Yeah, you're just so careful to hold up the truth of every part of the situation, even if you're letting a little bit of it fall. I, I just, I really, it it has made it. Um, you've really added a lot of new language that helped me see the adoptive experience more clearly. And it just, it helps me see, um, like the truth of love everywhere, even if, uh, even if it's not like neat or tidy. So Nicole, it was, uh, it was such a joy talking with you and thanks so much for your, your beautiful, careful categories about belonging and love. Thank you so much. I'm, I was really glad to be here and thank you for reading. Nicole didn't get an easy answer to the question of her life, where do I belong? But she reminds me that regardless of a story's incompleteness, it still has the capacity to hold incredible love. So here's a blessing for all of you who find yourself living in the gray. Blessed are you who live here, this space between, between simple categories and easy answers. You who wonder why this is your life, why you got this diagnosis, or why you still struggle with infertility, or why you haven't found your birth parents, or why you can't kick the addiction, or why your kids haven't come home. Blessed are you who build a home on uneasy ground, who, despite your trying, your asking, your searching, haven't found the satisfying feeling of discovery. And blessed are you never will. This is not an easy place to live. Outside of certainty, outside of knowing, 
outside of the truth. But blessed are you who realize that love and beauty and courage and meaning can still be found here, amid the unease and the frustration and the sleepless nights. May you be surprised by your capacity for ambiguity, for the way it makes you a great listener and a good friend, for you are someone who knows how to feel your way around in the dark and squint for the stars. I wish it were easier, dear one. I wish I could hand you the answers you seek. But for now, may you find comfort in the fact that you are not alone here in the gray. We are all learning to live in the uncertainty, in the unknowing. So blessed are we who live here together. We are in the season of Lent, the time in the church calendar that challenges us all to turn ourselves toward the truth that the world is both terrible and beautiful, and somehow God meets us there. I've been posting a video every morning on Instagram and Facebook, as well as sending out daily email reflections to help orient our day. So if that's your thing and you want to join along, visit katebowler.com Lent to sign up for free. Today's episode was made possible by our lovely partners, the Lilly Endowment, the Duke Endowment, and Duke Divinity School, who support our Faith in Media project. We are so grateful for their generosity and investment in what we do. And of course, my team, who I am completely obsessed with, Jessica Ritchie, our executive producer, Harriet Putman, our associate producer, Keith Weston, our sound designer, and the rest of the Everything Happens crew who make this project so much fun. Dan Wells, AJ Walton, Mary Jo Clancy, JJ Dickinson, Lana Stewart, Kelly Dunlap, Aaron Lane, Jeb, and Sammy, thank you. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler. <laughs>